It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Linguist John McWhorter says a few words in the English language make talking about politics difficult. He suggests the words socialism and liberalism be replaced because they no longer mean what they once did. Political discourse is a mess, and these terms make it messier, says McWhorter. So if Hillary Clinton is asked if she's a liberal, she steps aside and says, I consider myself a good progressive. What a strange state of affairs that she has to step aside from what some people call the L word. How did it get that way? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. There are many isms in our political dialogue. Fascism, progressivism, conservatism, liberalism, and socialism. What's the history behind these terms, and how have their meanings morphed into labels politicians steer clear of? John McWhorter, who teaches at Columbia, says neoliberal began as a proud watch cry of progressives. Now it's a slur leveled by progressives at others. How has the label Republican been applicable to Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump? McWhorter says the rules that govern why meanings change and our social climate have made political terms dynamic and confusing. Here's McWhorter. Thanks for coming to hear me. I want to make a probably modest proposal. I want to do something that linguists don't usually do, but... Our political discourse is such a mess that I'm going to make an exception. And that is that I am going to suggest that certain terms be discarded by educated or concerned people because they make it almost impossible to have clear discourse about things that really matter. This is not what linguists do. We are interested in how language actually is. We're interested in the freedom and the spontaneity and the richness of live colloquial speech. And for us, there's no such thing as somebody who is saying something in the wrong way. There's just no science behind it. And the only example of anything where someone has said, people say one thing, but they should say something else that's actually worked is the business of saying Billy and I went to the store rather than Billy and me went to the store. That has penetrated general consciousness for some reason. And the person who suggested it is long dead and had no idea that anyone would listen. And here we are. Other than that, it never works. However, this might, and I am starting this morning with something that I'm going to push even harder. And that is that we need to discard two terms. They just have no use in terms of how we speak about life. Liberalism has got to go. It's time to stop using that word. Socialism should not be used when we're talking about any election in the United States during our lifetimes. The term simply has to go. Those terms need to be replaced. I know that sounds crazy. This is what I mean. In language, it is inevitable that words, references change over time. It's simply that culture changes, life changes. There's often just chance drift. And so, what's a commodity? You're talking about, you know, commodities futures. Now, if you think about it, commodity has to do with comfort. And that's how it started, with things that might make you comfortable, such as all the things you can do with a soybean and the like. Gradually, the idea came to be that what was a commodity was something that occurred in large quantity and something that is in large quantity often is traded a lot, then drifted in the meaning that you apply those things to a particular kind of futures market. And next thing you know, you're talking about commodities in a way that's utterly opaque, given what commodity is supposed to mean. You have to learn it in a class. And it seems that an awful lot of financial language is almost willfully opaque in that way. You just have to deal with it. What is a Republican? The Republican Party begins in the early 1850s, and they're in favor of abolition. They're heavily interested in antitrust legislation, in the building of infrastructure. 
That's the Republican Party. Obviously, today's Republican Party has a very different set of imperatives. That happened gradually. One deals with it. Well, liberalism is one of those things where you think you know what liberal means, what liberalism should be. And then, for example, you take a class in political science or in philosophy, and you find that it's actually a highly elusive term, and you wonder whether you ever quite knew what it meant. You find out that it has a hydra-headed kind of existence. And frankly, it's a mess. And if we were talking about something that we don't deal with very often, we just have to allow that. But in this case, I think it really does make coherent dialogue difficult in many ways. And so, for example, liberalism begins, as many of us might remember from various classes, as what we would call classical liberalism. And classical liberalism, compared to what we might viscerally think of liberalism being now, was something that seems rather spare and almost hostile. And that's because classical liberalism was not about freedom to, but freedom from. So there's that liber root, and that's about free. But the idea wasn't what you were free to do that you thought up. The idea was that you were free from obstacles to being your best self. And so what that meant was that classical liberalism was about, for example, free markets. So you're supposed to have free markets that are not restricted. You are supposed to have a certain distrust of how individuals work. You do not want to have too much restraint upon or control of the way people do things because of this Burkean kind of distrust of how human beings work. It was a matter of being free from. That's what classical liberalism was. And what it meant was a different set of opinions, a different set of allegiances than we might think. So for example, at a time when many people still thought of liberal as shorthand for classical liberalism, you have to go back to roughly the 30s and 40s to find people that are at all accessible to us who are this kind. Dorothy Thompson was a famous columnist and writer and speaker. She occupied the place in the culture that roughly Maureen Dow did until about 10 years ago or that David Brooks does today. So this was a household name. Dorothy Thompson considered herself a good liberal and she was depicted in the Hepburn Tracy movie Woman of the Year. The character that Katherine Hepburn is playing is based on Dorothy Thompson who we haven't heard of now. But if you could resuscitate Dorothy Thompson, or you don't have to, you can read her work, she's gone. She was a liberal, so that meant that she hated Adolf Hitler. Good, that's easy. Dorothy Thompson also hated Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal. For her, she was a good liberal, but the idea that you would have all of this legislation that gives so much to people rather than having people find or seek these things themselves, all of this legislation that struck her as vaguely socialist, and we'll talk about that, all of that didn't work for her, and she thought of herself as someone who was on the side of the angels. So classical liberalism. Notice even at this event that on our conservative panel a couple of days ago, Brett Stevens and Robert Doerr and Charlie Sykes and Mona Charon many times mentioned, especially Brett Stevens, classical liberalism as a philosophy that they aspire to. That's always a little road bump when we're talking about things, when someone who is a self-professed conservative mentions classical liberalism as something that they believe in, and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, I thought liberal had to do with the left and with moving ahead, and so why is this person who is a political conservative calling themselves a classical liberal? What do they mean by classical? And you might find out, but it requires that kind of mental acrobatics. And it doesn't really have to be that way. What the acrobatics come from is the simple fact that liberalism has vastly changed its meaning in a way that has to do with rather forced readings of that root liber free, 
that makes it hard to conceive of how people can come together or even what people are often talking about. And so, for example, liberalism to us today is social liberalism, which was thought of as an add-on to classical liberalism. So the idea became, this started with the populist movements that arose at the end of the 19th century, but really took off and became part of our drinking water in the Great Depression as part of New Deal legislation. The idea that you would reform liberalism by having what was called social liberalism. Now, social social liberalism's idea was that not only would people be free from restraint in terms of the pursuit of happiness, but that they would also be free from the shackles that you could imagine there being if you don't have access to health care, if you don't have access to good education. Today we would say if you don't have access to a fine climate, to a healthful environment. That's a coherent argument. We've heard it recently from Bernie Sanders. Is it really freedom if you don't have access to health care, if you don't have access to good education. Okay, fine, but it's a rather forced way of putting it. It is now such that Bernie Sanders has to put it that way, and we talk about it, and it was rather forced then too. The idea was that not only do you want people to be free from certain basic hindrances to the pursuit of happiness, but you wish to give people certain things. You wish there to be certain things in place that are not compatible with the classical liberal idea of letting people fend for themselves with the idea that that's how society comes out best. That is a perfectly coherent conclusion that one might have. Social liberalism is something quite different from that. But this is how language often works. Social liberalism is a term that, say, Dorothy Thompson would have readily recognized. She knew there was classical liberalism that she would have learned about as a schoolgirl at the turn of the century, and now there is this new hegemony of social liberalism. But very quickly, liberalism came to be seen as the term to use as short for social liberalism. Uh, An example would be And on the fly, I can't think of another one, so I'm just going to say, if we say intercourse, it's assumed, unless we mention otherwise, that you're referring to sexual intercourse. You might be talking about traffic patterns or general conversation, but we assume that if you say intercourse, you mean sexual intercourse. If you say liberalism today, so long after the 30s, what you mean is what somebody from the 30s would have thought of as social liberalism in contrast to classical liberalism. So this is a very interesting way of using the term. And what it means is that, for example, an Ann Coulter can talk about not liking liberals, can title a book, How to Talk to a Liberal If You Have To. And that book title would have made no sense to Dorothy Thompson. That book title would have made no sense to John Locke. That would have been a very difficult book title to parse to somebody in the middle of the 19th century. What she means, and it's perfectly innocent because this is the way we use the term, is a social liberal as opposed to a classical liberal, which she is. But the terminology has gotten really, really messy. And so, pause. (laughs) The result is that liberalism is understood now not to mean freedom from a certain, frankly, rather abstract set of possible hindrances to what an individual might want to do and a cherishing of the individual as opposed to a more fascist conception of humanity. Instead, liberalism is often thought of as freedom to, and a general, you might even think of it as libertine way of looking at things. A liberal is somebody who wants to let it all hang out. You are free to have legislation that does this, that, or the other thing. You are free to break what used to be considered the bonds of social coherence, the norms of social decency. That, in our heads, is what we think liberal probably means. Freedom 
to do certain things as opposed to the conservative who's pulling back on the reins. And that's often not what people mean. It is a pejorative way of thinking of something that classical liberals thought of as a public good. And more to the point, it creates even worse ambiguity when you think about terms like neoliberal. What does that word mean? Think about it. You read by it, neoliberal, and you think you know what it means, that it has something to do with somebody who is socially kind of libertine and has new ideas. And then when you see that neoliberal criticized, you can tell that's not what they mean. And frankly, you often just move on unless you're a specialist in political science. It's a really difficult term, neoliberal. And the reason is because the neoness of that kind of liberality was created at the beginning of the 20th century by very smart people who were thinking of a revision of classical liberalism. So as far as they were concerned, classical liberal, liberalism was a good thing, but its emphasis on free trade and its comfort with capitalism was a problem. So the idea was to fetter somewhat the role of capitalism in society while allowing it to thrive. Now what this meant was that somebody who considered themselves a neoliberal in, say, 1920 or 1930 thought of themselves as what we today would think of as being on the side of the angels. So Walter Lippmann is another person. You know, Walter Lippmann, then Paul Krugman, David Brooks now. Walter Lippmann was a proud neoliberal. He helped spread the usage of the term. And his idea was that he was fighting against the excesses of capitalism, that he was on the side of the angels, that he was fighting evil, and by evil he meant what probably most of us in this room would think of as evil. But nowadays we hear of neoliberal used in a very different way, and I'm going mostly noteless because I prefer to, but it's early and my memory is not going to hold this quote. So this is George Shalaba, and he's criticizing neoliberals about 11 years ago, and he says, a neoliberal is someone who is interested in the extension of market dominance to all spheres of social life, fostered and enforced by the state, investor rights agreements masquerading as free trade and constraining the rights of governments to protect their own workers' environments and currencies. So that's what this person says. That's a common assessment of what a neoliberal is, as basically an apologist for a heedless and heartless capitalist establishment. That's not what Walter Lippmann meant, and it's very difficult to see from this point in time why anybody would ever have called that kind of position, or a position that lends itself to that kind of slurring, as liberal at all. Yankee Doodle um, came to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. You, you just let it go by. It, it wasn't pasta. It was that a macaroni was a fop. So you stick a feather in your hat and you call it macaroni. We just kind of let it go by. You have to be told that. In the same way, why is a neoliberal in the pages of many of our organs today the devil? It doesn't make sense that the person being called all those names is a liberal unless you think about how vastly the term has drifted from what it once was. So if Hillary Clinton is asked if she's a liberal, she steps aside and says, I consider myself a good progressive. What a strange state of affairs that she has to step aside from what some people call the L word. How did it get that way? It's partly that the word has drifted into such a confusing series, of just a farrago of usages, that you have to question whether it's useful anymore. Another example of this is socialism. So socialism, what is that? Our candidates are talking about it. Our candidates are running away from it. It begins with Latin, and socius meant roughly companion. Socialism was a, a warm word. It, it was a muffin word. It was one of those words that makes you feel good. And so you have social and that meant fellowship. That meant people, you know, liking each other. And then you have socialism, and what it meant was roughly government ownership of the means of production and various facilities of distribution, with the idea being that private enterprise is severely limited in order that all people have certain basic needs 
provided for them. That's what it meant. And that's not too far from a muffin there. That's what socialism was supposed to be when it was created by very concerned people watching the ravages of capitalism, particularly in the mid and late 19th century. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Public health experts warn the 21st century could see unprecedented challenges in fighting infectious disease. The ubiquity of world travel means epidemics can become pandemics with ease, and the development of antibiotics has perversely catalyzed the rise of superbugs that resist treatment. How can governments with competing interests and ideologies work alongside health officials to mitigate risk? Hear global health workers talk about preparing for the next big outbreak on our website. Look for the collection Going Viral, Infectious Disease in the 21st Century on aspenideas.org. That's aspenideas.org. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's linguistics professor John McWhorter. I recommend a movie. Not enough people see this movie because they're getting to be a lot of movies. You know, it's at the point where if you are a young person, sound movies almost go 100 years. And so not only do you need to see the ones from, say, the 80s on, but what old movies are you going to see? I'm 53, and I'm thinking, I'm lucky. I'm the last generation that can have seen all movies. It's getting to the point where that's hard. There's some oldies that don't get talked about that should. I recommend Make Way for Tomorrow. This is 1937. Um, it's directed by Leo McCary. You know what? That, that doesn't matter. And nobody who's in it is a star today. But it is readily available on home video. And what it's about is people before Social Security, two elderly people, and what happens to them when they can't work anymore. Their children are modern, what we would now call upwardly mobile people, who can't really take them in. So the movie basically shows what happens to these people, and the final solution is that one child takes in one, one child takes in the other, and the two people, you can tell, especially with the way communications and transportation were in 1937, they're never going to see each other again. The final shot is heartbreaking. The woman leaves her husband in the train station, and Beulah Bondi gets this perfect expression on her face. You can see she knows she's never going to see her husband again. There's no such thing as Social Security. So Social Security comes in in the 1930s, right around that movie, and that's to relieve situations like that. The idea being to allow people to have a certain basic comfort in their old age. Already there were people on the sidelines saying that this was something called socialism, which took away people's agency. The idea being that those people should have saved better, that society would work better if people like that weren't given what you call handouts. Nevertheless, that way of thinking of what we call socialism was resisted enough to create the New Deal legislation and the orthodoxy that all of us now assume that liberalism, i.e. social liberalism, is a default state. Nevertheless, the word socialism has continued to pollute. And so people have associations with it that are negative. And that's not going to change to the extent that there are people who have always supposed that what used to be called classical liberalism, and it's now called other things, is the way a society should work, Socialism has not been treated as a muffin word. In a, in, rather, it's associated with the former Soviet Union, for one thing. It is associated with the foreign. It's thought of as something that's not American. And therefore, not only just foreign, but there's a short step from foreign to unfamiliar and even menacing and even unpatriotic. It's a threat to the national fabric. It suggests an anti-Americanism. It suggests a dislike of that which is good about us. It's joyless. Socialism is thought of as joyless. Think of socialism and think of somebody clapping their hands. Notice it doesn't work. All of us have been polluted by this idea that socialism 
is gloomy. Wherever there's socialism, it's always a cloudy day. We shouldn't think of it that way, probably, but that doesn't mean that we don't, and it doesn't mean that we can necessarily change it. And so that's what's happened to the word socialism. And it's natural. There is a tendency for terms to become more pejorative over time. There's a linguist truism that words' meanings are always changing, and sometimes it's in an ameliorative direction, and so sometimes it's in a direction where something becomes more positive, and sometimes it's in a pejorative direction where things become negative. Always, I think any linguist has known that if you really think about it in a kind of an approximative kind of way, it seems like pejorative is more common, but that used to just be kind of a thumbnail sketch vision of things. It's been proven. There have been some studies done of corpora of linguistic material in several languages. And it's clear, terms tend to become more pejorative over time. That is the general tendency. Notorious used to just mean famous. It just meant that you were in the public eye. It didn't mean that people thought you were a jerk. Obnoxious used to mean vulnerable, standing out to possible harm. That was only 125 years ago. It gradually came to mean somebody who was annoying. Charles II looked at St. Paul's Cathedral and said, my, my, it's so artificial. And he meant that as a compliment, the idea being that it's fancy, that it's imaginative, that a great deal has been made out of what could have been a little. Artificial now would be a slur. Pompous used to be praise, and gradually it came to mean, you know, whichever pompous person you may be familiar with. That sort of thing is natural. It's happened to the word socialism. And one can scarcely think that you can reverse these basic conceptions that settle in among all of us. And so we have someone like the current president who said in his first State of the Union, we are born free and we will stay free. Now, he doesn't know what the free means, you know, freedom from. Yeah, and so the idea is that you're free from restraints upon the pursuit of happiness. He doesn't know. He's just thinking free means that you're not being hemmed in by this socialist nightmare. So we're born free and we will stay free tonight. And it was on that night, apparently. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. That's what he says, and everybody clapped, the idea being that socialism is some kind of disease. We're just kind of stuck with that notion. Way back, George Bernard Shaw, most people seem to think he was pretty bright and insightful, and by way back I mean 1900, he said even then, I find that socialism is often misunderstood by its least intelligent supporters and opponents, to mean simply unrestrained indulgence of our natural propensity to heave bricks at respectable persons. He was saying that 119 years ago. Has it changed? No, I don't think so. And so socialism is this highly polluted term, and we're just stuck with its associations. I think we need to talk about things in a new way. I think that we could have more time to talk about real things if we didn't have these ancient and, frankly, effed up terms gumming up the works and allowing unscrupulous people to make accusations that don't actually make any sense but which have to be discussed, leaving less time to talk about the crisis that our nation is in. And so I truly believe that liberalism and socialism as words need to go. Liberal, liberal is broken. It sounds like it means released from constraint, and therefore you think of, for example, the knee-jerk liberal, that term from the 70s. I remember hearing that when I was a kid. The idea being that you just want to give handouts, for example, in terms of welfare freely, i.e. liberally. The idea is that's what liberal supposedly means. The idea is that a government is going to give out things liberally, that human beings are going to conduct themselves in a liberated and possibly sloppy and threatening manner. The term was bad from the beginning. Liberal should have been a term that meant something like protective. That was the idea. You are free from things. We can't change what people like Hobbes did. But it was bad then, it's worse now. Liberal is a term that is so screwed up that it's not useful. And socialism is broken 
in the same way. Now, one technique is to make clearer what you mean by socialism. And so fans of Bernie Sanders or fans of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will often specify what we mean is democratic socialism. That does not work. The socialism term is already so gunked up with negative associations that to call it democratic socialism, I don't want to use a vulgar term, so I'm just going to say that it's the opposite of gilding the lily. It's a complete failure. To say democratic socialism is the direct equivalent of how effective it was to talk about compassionate conservatism. Remember that? So you've got conservatism, and then somebody made up the idea that there's a such thing as compassionate conservatism. Well, if you didn't like conservatism, for whatever the reasons were, someone calling it compassionate conservatism came off simply as canny and slightly pathetic. It just doesn't work. Imagine compassionate conservatism. Imagine if you think of something as coercion, and somebody says, well, no, it's compassionate coercion. No. And so... If somebody doesn't like socialism, to specify that it's democratic socialism and to expect more than a very few people to go onto Wikipedia and look at the way Denmark and Sweden are run and the history of that particular term is unrealistic. Douglas Massey is um, a sociologist who wrote an interesting book called The Return of the L Word where he talked about fighting for the term liberal in, you know, in the vein of what I'm talking about. Noble idea. It hasn't worked, and I don't think that it's going to work. And so, for example, if there's going to be a second Bill of Rights, and frankly, I personally hope that there will be one, it should not be called a liberal activity. It should not be called a liberal idea, and it certainly should not be called a socialist idea. And calling it a democratic socialist idea is basically just throwing sand in people's faces. It should be called a progressive idea. We need to get rid of talking about liberalism and, and socialism when we talk about what's going on here in the United States. Progressives should replace those terms completely. Now, already libertarians had the right idea in choosing a new term for themselves when these sands started shifting. Libertarianism is a kind of this classical liberalism that I first started talking about. And it got to the point that when social liberalism was assumed to be the default kind of liberalism, libertarians decided to stop calling themselves liberals because it didn't make sense anymore, and it detracted from them explaining how they wanted to do things. That's been effective, as libertarianism goes. And so Murray Rothbard, um, pioneer modern libertarian scholar and thinker and activist in the 1960s, said, the leftists have now corrupted that once proud term, liberal, to identify themselves in their program of more government ownership of property and more controls over persons, Lord forbid. As a result, those of us who believe in freedom must explain that when we call ourselves liberals, we mean liberals in the uncorrupted classical sense. At best, this is awkward and subject to misunderstanding. Here's a suggestion. Let those of us who love liberty trademark and reserve for our own use the good and honorable word libertarian. Leftists are now at a point where a new term is needed. Progressive is better. It's just better. For one thing, it's etymologically more transparent. If you're thinking about moving ahead rather than going back to what somebody might think of as a better way of things having been, call it progressive. Don't call it liberal when it sounds to our modern ears that liberal means freeing the horses out of the barn to do questionable things. Talk about it as progress. It's progressive. Rhetorically, progressive is better. If somebody says, why are you a liberal? Frankly, the term is so ambiguous that it's hard to say anything coherent at all. If somebody says, why are you a socialist? Think of all the cobwebs that you've got to pull away. And frankly, socialist sounds glum, and there's nothing you can do to fix that. Why are you a progressive? It's easy to say. You know, why are you against progress? And a person might be against progress, but frankly, you've put them in a bit of a corner. It's harder to say that you're against progress than that you are against socialism, which sounds so glum. And it's also subject to so many different interpretations. Conservatively needs less work. 
That term is not worn out. It refers in our minds to exactly what most conservatives, not our president, but what most conservatives think. So conservatives and libertarians, you can let them fight. They're doing okay. But terms on the left need changing. Socialism should be used for Denmark. It should be used for places where there really is a major kind of taxation with the goal of creating a certain kind of life for all people, where there is a certain degree of government ownership of means of production and other collective entities, if not to the point of actual classical socialism. But socialism should be used for those countries, and therefore not here. No viable candidate is advocating that we actually become Denmark. So socialism should be used for socialism, but not here. So in closing, this is what I mean. There are terms that are so opaque that they impede discussion rather than allowing it. And language is always imperfect, but the idea is supposed to be that language is about communication, about putting your thought into someone else's head. What's dating? Think about it. To date, like romantically. Imagine if your child asks, Mommy, what's, what, what is dating? Think about that term. That could refer to going out with someone one time and having an ice cream sundae. That term could refer practically to living with someone for three or four years. Dating could refer to any degree of involvement that people may have had. Two people may not have even touched and they dated, or they may have touched a great deal in many ways, and they've dated. The term means, frankly, nothing. If you say, we dated for a while, you're using that term as a way of detracting from having to get at all specific. Oh, yeah, we dated. It means nothing at all. Now, some people like that. Maybe we need a term for something like that. They, they dated briefly. I mean, what, what does that mean? However, liberalism and socialism are as opaque as that word. And so, what is a liberal? And whatever you think it is, why is the term one that today is sometimes applied in the form neoliberal to a cigar-chomping plutocrat out of a movie like Make Way for Tomorrow? And what does liberal mean? Notice that if many of you would hesitate before explaining what liberal is, it's time for that term to go. When we're talking about politics, especially today, I'm sure anybody at any time thinks of their time as, as urgent as we do now, but we're stuck with the now. Especially today, with politics as urgent as it is, we can't use terms where we would have a hard time even explaining their meanings or we only really learn their meanings taking classes which after a while we don't remember. It won't do. We should say progressive. Or on socialism, if you like your socialism, great. But can you truly imagine a time when embracing socialism won't require more time defending it and clarifying what you mean than in talking about why you think this would be better for people and why the other person's idea isn't as strong. So this is a call for embracing progressivism, not pretending that it's something different from liberalism or socialism, but using progressivism to refer to the typical left-of-center positions that we espouse today, and letting liberalism go as a term that just basically wore out like an old tire, and socialism as a term that applies to a narrower range of situations which do not include the one that we live in now. The shorthand for understanding my wishing to do away with those terms should be, what does it mean to date? And are you comfortable with our political terms being as almost willfully and hopelessly ambiguous as the term to date? I can't have it, and I hope you all won't either. Thank you. So uh, 20 years ago, at the end of the Clinton era, uh, progressives were identified as the very far left, right? And uh, I believe for many people of a certain age, uh, that, that term carries that baggage. So what would you do about that? My sense is that it's changed over about the past 10 years for a very interesting complex of reasons, such that progressive no longer sounds like 
you know, the bomb-throwing radical that it did, say, about 20, 25 years ago. There are people planting tomatoes in Brooklyn Heights who will now say that they're progressives, and they're not waiting for life to be terribly different from what it is now. And I think that, therefore, it's when I started calling myself a progressive, despite how much that would surprise some people. And so progressive, I think, is useful because it's etymologically so transparent. It's about moving forward, and we still think of progress as meaning that, as opposed to liberal, where the free part is too ambiguous at this point. And leftist also has a certain stain of disruption and impoliteness about it. It shouldn't, but it does. And so it seems to me that we need something that is a little softer around the edges than that. But yeah, I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago. A progressive was a crazy person, if you, if you know what I mean. Now I think that's changed enough that it would be useful as a replacement for terms that are worse than, worse than that was. Yeah, I take your point. Uh, John, Ben Benson, I'm a marketing professor at the University of Texas. I think about these things in terms of branding. Mm -hmm. So the socialist brand over time started to take on more negative associations, and so then the, the brand suffered as a result. Mm -hmm. And last night you argued that there was sort of an arc to profanity mm -hmm. where words took on certain heat, then over time with repeated use that heat went down and then they sort of fell into more common use and stopped being profane. Mm -hmm is think about that same concept with regard to progressive. Is it possible that over 20 years, progressive takes on the same negative associations that today it's a fresh new brand? Could there be that same arc? Oh, there's no question. That will definitely happen. And so if progressive was used in that way, you would give it roughly 20 years. And it'd be interesting to see how suddenly progress ended up sounding gloomy and stupid, et cetera, et cetera. Then you need a new term. So, as I said, I think in this room last year, we have to assume that the euphemism treadmill is going to keep going. But we need to embrace it. And so there comes a time when in terms of branding, and that analogy is perfect, you think we need a new brand in order to move conversation forward. Or I'm not even thinking about moving it forward. I'm thinking about just conversation having a basic coherence. But yeah, they'll, they'll jump on progressive, and then you know, we'll need something else. That's the problem with language. It doesn't work. Uh, my question is along the same line, and it is, uh, when I hear uh, socialist, I have a visceral reaction, um, it, much along lines of what you've been talking about. And, I, and my question is not terribly far off from the, the previous questioner, but it seems that, um, let's just say folks that are further on the right have been much more successful at weaponizing our own language against us. Mm -hmm. And so if... if if we could accept that that's true, how would you propose we inoculate and protect our language? Well, to tell you the truth, I think that a better strategy would be, instead of trying to protect it, to just allow that there are always going to be these shifting sands to the point that we plan, that we know in advance that terms are going to wear out, instead of thinking, wow, why is that word changing? How come we used to be able to say this and now people mean that? Why are we letting the meaning drift? It's always going to happen. It's happened on the right, too. But to the extent that the right demonizes our terminology, to say that's not what we mean doesn't seem to work, especially given the machine that they seem to have built. And so I would just say, keep jumping and use different terms. And you know, they'll wear out, but they can be more useful than the ones that we have. It, it pains me to watch a Bernie bro or a fan of AOC saying, no, it's democratic socialism. And if it's somebody from the other side, you can just watch the eyebrows knit. It's rhetorically hopeless. And I think to myself, no, you need to say progressive because that would make this a much more constructive conversation. And that person should be prepared when they have gray hair to get used to some new term. America could become more mature in terms of how linguistics and language works in knowing that that sort of thing is nearly inevitable. Now, that is not what many people would say. Many people would say, fight for the term. Sorry, it doesn't work and life is short. And so I say, just keep on moving as long as it seems to make some sort of progress in how we talk about things, progress. I realize we need to use these terms, but I wonder sometimes if 
we're being a little intellectually lazy when we flock to these terms. And I'm wondering, sort of in your conversations with students, if part of the, in generally, part of the challenge as we sort of move toward this time where we're going to be using these terms more and more is maybe to spend a little more time thinking about what our principles are behind these terms. You know, how much of the American populace really understands the principles behind these terms as opposed to the sort of the propensity toward a flock herd mentality to rush to these terms. When we, in civic discourse, when we get to these awkward moments in cocktail parties, when people say, who are you, what do you believe, rather than using these terms, perhaps we should state our, our principles. What thoughts do you have about, you know, having a little more rigor and around what we actually mean? And how do you, how, how do you coach your students around? Um, yeah, that's a, that, that's a very important point. I have a certain, it's hard to say these things, I have a certain pessimism about the extent to which it can permeate a large populace such as this one with a very mediocre public school system. The basic conceptions of, for example, what liberalism is supposed to be. So you talk about how I get it across to my students. Whenever we get to Hobbes and Locke, the big theme for me, like on top of my notes, is the word liberal and talking about what they meant, freedom from, freedom to, being very careful how you process that word, and realizing how crucial the focus on the individual was, how crucial and meaningful to people then the idea was that you were free from someone being able to take your property, etc. All of that is so remote from our existence now. I'm not sure that at the typical cocktail party, a critical mass of people are going to be thinking about what Hobbes and Locke meant. And I don't mean that they're not going to be thinking about Hobbes and Locke. They simply won't. But I mean the concepts. It's rather abstract, and none of us live under Hobbesian or Hobbesian-like conditions now. Thank, thank God. What I think people can understand, God, this sounds so condescending, sorry, but what I think that most people will understand is progress versus things being the way that they were. And maybe the way things were was good. It's not that the conservative argument is always wrong. That works better for me. So I don't think we can go much further in making the person on the street understand why you need to read Leviathan. I know what you mean, but there are limits. And you know, it's at the point where, I mean, it's beginning to happen to me. You read on your phone, you know, the long form argument I'm afraid. And so let's just get it down to relatively elementary things, which can afford extremely rich conversation. That is my answer. But when I've got some people who have to listen to me talk about this sort of thing, very important to understand the origins of these terms, what a libertarian is, what classical liberalism is. Brett Stevens will just throw that out in a column. You might have no idea what he means. I take your point, but we're weird. So... These words are interesting, and you're a linguist, and you treat them as sort of abstract constructs. You're talking about Hobbes and Locke, who really were not liberals. That was pre-liberal. You really have to go to John Stuart Mill if you really want to understand true liberalism. Go ahead. But anyway, socialism was formed before liberalism, actually. Uh, in the early 19th century, and no, it's a French. It was a French term right after the right after the revolution. The term, yeah. yeah and they were trying to do it. They were, and it was, but anyway, socialism is gray. When you say the people call it gray, that's because it is. I've been to. I spent a lot. Spent a lot of time in East Germany before the wall came down, and it's it was too bad. Uh, hmm? That's too bad. Well, keep, keep going. Well, I had an American. I was just there for a few days so I could go somewhere else. What happens under socialism is, and happening now and throughout Europe, it, it's really a bad idea. And trying to mess around with terms like this when we're dealing with things which will really make the world turn gray if you do it, that's not exactly a question. No, um, I'll just say that. With socialism, it depends on what you're talking about, and so now I'm this Bernie bro. But if we're talking about Denmark, I don't think Denmark is, is so gray. You know, the sun doesn't shine enough, but they seem to be relatively happy with the way they do things. It wouldn't be my style, but there you go. But that's not pure socialism. And if what you're really talking about is communism, I think it's an easier argument to make. I 
spent three days traipsing around in the former East Germany once for reasons I won't get into. And yeah, you could smell it. It was all of a sudden there was no color once you stepped into East Germany. It was like the reverse of the Wizard of Oz. I, I get what you mean. But I wouldn't make that argument about socialism. I don't think we're going to have socialism here. But these are, um, we're familiar with something. I'm not sure that making it more socialist would necessarily be a gray thing. But to the extent that we're not going to do it, I think we shouldn't talk about it that way. Or if one does, it can be used for certain rhetorical purposes, not ones that I particularly favor. I think I, ta- I think I take your point. It depends on what kind of socialism you mean. And to the extent that that seems like a vague answer, let's stop talking about socialism. So progressive. Thank you. Um, my question is kind of along in the same veins as Chip, but it's to what extent, or what extent do words matter, given that if I look at an apple, it's an apple to me because I'm American, but if I look at an apple and I'm from a Latin American co- country, it's a manzana, right? So it's like all these things. Mm-hmm. And so to what extent does saying progressive really matter if people are going to still kind of um, dirty or muddle the term? And I think mm-hmm. that that is happening on the right as well. Like conservatism no longer just means conservatism. Burkean. Right. It, it means yeah. like racism. Is You're a terrible to that, person. Right? Yeah, right. so... To what extent do these words matter? Words do matter, but they don't stand still. And so I'm going to say something so corny. I wrote a book called Words on the Move. And the idea was to explain that a word, how did I put it? It is early. Um, a word is not a word is not a thing. A word is something going on. Like you think of it as something that's always moving. And so a word will work for 15 years. I think that's the best we can do. Now, apples are so uninteresting, no offense if anybody's a fan, that that doesn't move along much. Although the word apple in Old English actually referred to just round fruits. And so then it became narrower. Talk about pejorative. It came to refer to that kind of overrated red thing. That's how things (laughs) happen. But they, words do matter, but they're always moving around. And I want us to understand that we are always dealing with a moving thing. They are four-year-old children. There's no such thing as a four-year-old who just sits there. That's what words are like. That is my sincere answer to that. Are we out of time? Oh, thank you, folks. Thank you. John McWhorter is an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic and host of Slate's Lexicon Valley podcast, He's authored several books about language, including Words on the Move. He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.